0: Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at Theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hempel. Today I'll be speaking with director of photography Jakob Ira about his latest film, Louder Than Bombs. Louder Than Bombs tells the story of Gene, Jonah, and Conrad Reed, a father and two sons struggling to deal with the death of their wife and mother, Isabel, two years after a fatal car crash. Gene, played by Gabriel Byrne, is in the early stages of a new relationship but struggling to connect with his willfully alienated teenage son Conrad, played by newcomer Devin Druid. Conrad's older brother Jonah, played by Jesse Eisenberg, has just had a baby but is hiding out from his wife and child at his old family house under the pretense that he's helping Gene and Conrad. All three men are forced to deal with Isabel's life and death, Isabel is played by Isabel Huppert in Flashback, by the way, on the eve of a major retrospective of her war photography. The emotional lives of all four characters as well as several supporting characters are beautifully conveyed by Ira's lighting and camera work which alternate between styles and tones to present a tapestry that's realistic and impressionistic in equal measures. Jumping from one time frame and level of reality to another, Louder Than Bombs is a clinic in how to present the interior lives of an ensemble and I'm pleased to have Jakob Ira here to talk about his work on the film. Uh, I want to start by asking about the origins of the project It's extremely ambitious, both visually and conceptually, and uh, I'm curious how the initial script read is compared to the finished film. Um, When did director Joachim Trier first bring you the project, and what were your initial impressions?
1: I uh, I first uh, read the script in uh, 2008, that was the first draft I I read, and we were kind of wanting to shoot this straight away. And that was just uh, two years after we had finished Joachim's uh, first film which was called uh, Reprise, uh, and that's a film that also explores film structure and kind of new ways or, or ambitious, so to speak, ways to, to tell a story using a structure and playing or, or dealing with time and space in different ways. So, uh, so we were kind of ready. There was kind of a normal progression to do this film back then. So it felt quite, it felt normal to do this, and of course it was an amazing story. And, and but the kind of the level of, of, ambition or the great vision that the script had, it almost, of course you realized it, but you didn't. You took it for granted almost. But then uh, the film had some, uh, some, challenges to get this made. Of course, like many films do, and. In that process they wrote another script. Uh, three years later they wrote another script and there was a script which was almost a complete opposite to, uh, to London Bombs and to Reprise, where there's uh, one straight story so to speak, uh, one uh, 24-hour arc uh, of, of structure, of narrative, about one man one person uh, a day in his life almost so that was our new uh, way of seeing films together and and that film was dealt visually with maybe just one brush stroke so to speak it didn't have it had one one texture and uh, the camera was the character's mirror and didn't didn't need to try anything else so we were read, we were we done, did that in 2011 and then we read then we were finally we, we got it together to do a lot of bombs and i read a, a last draft maybe a fourth draft of the script in 2014 and that was uh, an enormous um, awakening almost uh, reading this uh, again uh, when we were all a little bit older um, i had become maybe a father of, of two and and for many years i have been traveling or globetrotting the world as a cinematographer and at the same time dealing with family life just like the characters in the film so the the emotional impact was really extremely strong when i read it at that time in 2013-14 and so that was the first time and of course you also realized now when the script was even more enhanced in terms of structures and there were more visual ideas and you realized that this is an enormous uh, how should we be able to pull this off the other way good, worth mentioning is that all his scripts, all Joachim's scripts, when you read them, for some reason they they um, they feel so close to you that you almost think that they are written for for yourself. or he have written is for for us, and the same goes for the editor. He feels the same that they they resonate with us so much. And I think reading it 2014 was even such a much stronger experience to read it than than in 2011, just due to. Our present situation in life or, or our past experiences in the last years. So um, it felt like an enormous um, personal uh, project that had kind of given us.
0: And at what point, when you get a script, do you start thinking about your approach to cinematography? Do you think about that when you read it for the first time, or do you just read it for the story first without worrying about that?
1: Well, you, you don't want to enter that world almost at first. You want you don't want to enter your own world or professional world of cinematography. You want to um, you want to dwell on the story as long as possible. You want to. Talk about the characters and almost treat it real, as a work of literature and almost leave it like that you're, you're almost keeping your fingers and your mind away from it as long as you can because you don't want to it's, it's almost a unmerciful process to really to give these characters um, physical attributes or really to treat them with a lens or with a specific light and to give them rules these characters it's quite a ruthless um, of course, it's extremely creative and and uh, and, um, and joyful. But at the same time, it's uh, it's a hard and um, hard process. You wait with that as long as possible. And with um, with Joakim, who I, we've been friends for for 15, 16 years, and so when we meet, we we don't talk about that first. We we uh, of course talk about the characters and we play a lot of music and. Um, we yes, are trying to uh, almost avoiding the subject of cinematography for the for longest time possible and uh, talk through the script and um, and talk a lot about our our previous work together how what should we do this time how can we how can we avoid to make the same mistakes that we did on our last films or how can we improve things or so we try to uh, or i try to uh, almost stay away from the cinema, that's, that's, to stay away from giving an input as long as possible. And nowadays there's a lot of Skype calls when you do interviews for films, when you read a script and then the next day you know, they want to do a Skype call and you want to hear your, your vision on the film, how it should look like, and, and that's, uh, yeah, that's almost impossible. Of course you have to give one, but you really feel guilty doing it because you're not fair to the project when you um, when you have to give your statement so early on such, on such an important, such important text that's been you know, written for many years or developed for many years. So it's, um,
0: well, and, and once you do start thinking about the cinematography and having those conversations with the director, um, what are the initial stages that you go through when you're, you're thinking about how to translate a script's ideas into images?
1: Yeah, well, it's, um, as for Loves and Bombs, it's, uh, it's set in a contemporary world. And it's a lot about your own intuition. I mean, you, the characters are, are friends of yours almost, you, you know them quite well, and they are, you know, they, they are in our world. So, you, you in terms of uh, a visual style, you, you have a very very honest approach, and you're not as such ref, have referencing other work, you're just trying to give your own self into the project, uh, your own taste. If it's, a, if it's a science fiction film or if it's a period film, I guess there's, there's so many more references you have and you tend to go for, uh, for style and fashion and you don't use your, um, always your gut or your, your instinct or what's, what's practical. So it's, uh, it very much depends on the project, you know, which, uh, which approach you take or how, how the visual ideas have been born.
0: Did the fact that Isabelle Huppert's character was a war photographer influence your approach to the cinematography at all?
1: Not for the f- entire film as such, but the, of course for her sequences. Uh, she's in many sequences where you see her at her work, which is of course uh, artificial. So um, that was a great challenge, of course, to first to find many, time, many times real footage of uh, of war zones. And that was maybe a, a footage of one, one angle, and then we shot the reverse ourselves, we faked the reverse. And that of course was a, was a challenge to find the same texture and the same kind of camera technique, techniques as the, um, as the reference material had. Or we, we found images, and we had to juxtapose her into that image. Or in some cases, we even built our own uh, war world, so to speak. Um, uh, I mean, the, the first one of the first shooting days in the film, I think it was the first shooting day, was actually a, a still, a still camera shooting day where we shot. Uh, we shot in Brooklyn. We created a hotel room in Damascus, and those that scene was shot just with stills which is later, those stills or those photos are later discovered by her son when he opens her camera bag and finds her camera and and the memory card where he finds the stills from her Damascus trip. So uh, so it was a lot about planting her in that world and make her character believable by using the right uh, techniques.
0: Uh, One of the things I loved about the movie was the way each character's state of mind was expressed visually, sometimes through memories or flashbacks, sometimes just through subtle manipulations of point of view. Did you come up with specific approaches for how to express each person's emotional state via lighting or camera movement or, or color? Did you think about that ahead of time or was that sort of more intuitive? Or?
1: Well, the majority of the film is, um, the majority of the film, if it's in present or, or in the past, is that is all dealt with the same brush or with the same same lenses and same uh, film stock. We, we wanted all the characters to have the same uh, to be in the same space visually when they are not in a dream or in a in a fantasy world so all those scenes were dealt with in the same treatment uh, even even you know the flashback scenes of isabel 3 years back that was still dealt with the same camera techniques as when we when we present the, the present And uh, and we never wanted to give her a a, a texture or a a treatment of nostalgia or of the past. Um, And that was a very strong decision not to make the flashback scenes uh, stand out or not to make them, uh, not to give them a a flashback look, so to speak. As uh, I think we often find that those, that treatment, at least for this film, would alienate you more or would uh, would take you away from the main story and everything would be even more uh, fragmented. If the flashback scenes also would be, you know, dealt with that flashback look, uh, so to speak, so that was a very strong um, uh, kind of visual rule that we had. But then, of course, we had the dream sequences of Conrad, of the of the younger son who who got these uh, dreams that we portray by using these uh, by using his kind of cornerstones of his world of computer games and of manga cartoons and um, and, um, of fantasy literature. So so his dreams are of course highly heightened and and we are using uh, a lot of visual effects and uh, and stylized uh, lighting and um, and different frame speed and different cameras. So so that world is very different of course from from the main part of the film.
0: Well, aside from the dream sequences, uh, the sort of naturalistic approach you took it really draws the viewer in, uh, as you say, to you know really relate to these characters' interior lives. And I'm wondering, what were some of the kind of visual rules or guidelines that you set out for yourself uh, to do that? I mean, you know, in terms of, you said everyone was painted with the same brush. You know, what was that brush? Were there what what kinds of lenses were you know were, were you sticking to certain focal lengths and Things like that.
1: Well, we, I don't know if you call it an honest approach, but we don't want to put our, put any style, any, uh, to draw attention to, uh, to the camera, we want to be very honest with the characters and honest with the film in terms of, for example, the aspect ratio. Um, the, the films that we've done together, they've always been shot with a 1 to 185 aspect ratio and Loud and Bombs was done with that aspect ratio to, to, um, to not to force any any your own stamp on the film, so to speak. A 2, three, five aspect ratio in some way is maybe is telling the audience something and, and it's something telling that this is cinema or this is a story or or, we have, or it's kind of um, it's um, interfering with the visuals, that, that beautiful aspect ratio, but the one 185 feels in many ways more subtle and not so interfering with the story, so that was one tool that we had. The other one was of course the lenses which was um, shot with um, ARRI Ultra Primes, which are quite, quite boring lenses. They, 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 they lack almost character um, when you look at them at the first time, but um, once you use them with a the, with the shallow depth of, depth of field or you shoot against uh, towards the, the windows, or you're underexposed, they they not only help you to to keep those extremes together because it's such a good lens, uh, a lens that would have had more character would maybe fall apart in those uh, circumstances, but this lens holds things together I feel and also in that process it kind of, of the lens also is is getting some character it kind of falls apart a little bit when you take it through these extreme lighting situations or these extreme f stops or 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 this um, how we work with focus. So, so the lens um, is once again the, the 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 starting point of the lens is very neutral and very honest. So uh, so those those tools, the aspect ratio, and, the, and this lens is uh, or this kind of lens is. Um, yeah, are strong kind of companions with us. And the uh, same goes for the, the, the focal length. We, most of the film has been shot on a 40 millimeter on, or on a 50 millimeter. Maybe if it existed, we would have shot the entire film on a 45 millimeter, but unfortunately that focal length doesn't exist. But that's also a lens which is very, not boring, but it's, um, it doesn't say much. But of course, it say it says a lot when you use it in a way that, you know, that uh, the vision Dictates us to use it in. Um, it's not a very. It's either wide or, or a long lens. It's um, something very unobtrusive, and with the one one eighty five aspect ratio, it still gives you. It gives you a wider image. You can get more headroom with this quite tight lens. If you have shot a forty millimeter on in a two three five aspect ratio, it would feel too, too narrow. But with the one to one to five aspect ratio, it kind of opens up a bit more, and the 40, and the 40 mm doesn't feel as uh, as tight as it could have been.
0: And so, does that desire to be unobtrusive extend to the lighting as well? I mean, how how much how big was your lighting package, and how much were you sort of trying to rely more on natural light or?
1: Uh, no, it was a big lighting package. I mean, it was a a, a union film, and, and with that comes uh, automatically a, a big package with uh, with uh, with a very big crew. And uh, no, so we we work with with bigger units often, and uh, and uh, it's a you know we, we want to create reality, but at the same time we want to find poetry, and and we want to at the same time play with history and and uh, and refer to the great masters so it's a it's a fine balance of not making it real and boring but also it should have some uh, cinematic flair or some cinematic uh, uh, playfulness as well or or they should feel it's, it uh, it deals with um, with, uh, with the with the, with, the, with the past or with the with, the, with the great cinema uh, of of history so it's um they're using many tools and so that goes for the lighting as well sometimes there are, there are no lights and sometimes it's, it can be very stylized lighting and very um, intricate lighting so it's um, that's beauty with Joachim that there are so many different not in the story not only in the storytelling there's so many different beats and but also uh, visually he allows us to uh, in editing and in sound design to use so many different techniques so it's difficult to pinpoint exactly how we did.
0: Well, in terms of, you know, you mentioning the great masters of cinema past and everything, I mean, are there certain directors or cinematographers who you looked to as touchstones or influences or jumping off points when you're thinking about your, your approach?
1: Uh, well, we, uh, we grew up with Tarkovsky, and Antonioni and especially Bergman, Ingmar Bergman. So they are, they are the cornerstones. They are really what we are. They have formed us. Uh, We went to film school together as well, and uh, and Tarkovsky was of course a a house god, and and he's always there with us. Um, So that's a a starting point um, always. But at the same time, uh, we grew up in the 80s watching a lot of American cinema, um, and that was so beautiful with this film that... um, why we did this film or why they wrote this film. I guess they, they are, you know, they don't want to pay tribute, it's not the word, but they, you know, they. we love ordinary people, we saw that all in our early teens or we rewatched it many times and same goes for Breakfast Club that you know, half of the population in Sweden have seen in their, in their early teens and, and that film, those films have really formed us and even the visuals of those films. Uh, for, uh, have formed us, um, and for this film, I mean, the, the, uh, the folder of, of references wasn't that, wasn't that big really. I mean, the, uh, I remember from Reprise and Oslo, the 31st, his earlier two films, they, were, they had so many references and so many pictures that we want to show each other, but they were more almost to educate ourselves and form us as, as filmmakers. And but today, now, many years later, we are so we, we are carrying these um, these references they are in our blood, so to speak. So it's, uh, So now when you you do research for a film to find the visual look, you do less it's less about the visual such, it's more about understanding research, understanding the, the war photographer, how she works, to understand. How it is to be a father, and and or discussing production design or props and references for cinematography are becoming less and less in other films together.
0: I'm curious how precisely you and Trier plan your shots. I mean, do you storyboard things and stick to that closely, or do you go in with an open mind and respond to the actors and locations, or is the approach somewhere in between?
1: Well, we work a lot on location. Uh, even his two previous films, there were a lot of location work and. Even during the writing process, they have the actual location in mind and they might even revisit the location while they are writing. So it's it's very very precise in that sense. Um, And so when we we do the scouting or the pre-production, we actually can revisit each location many times and we're often there with a with a 5d and we film almost the entire film beforehand uh, maybe as the two of us or we have our first uh, ad with us um, and we block out the scene and spend many hours in on each location uh, for the bombs we didn't have always the same opportunity to be on location that much prior to actually shooting but we still. You know, always try to spend as much time on location as possible and shoot most of the stuff uh, beforehand with a video camera. later on. I, I take frame grabs of what we shot, making stills, and then we do a, a, they become a storyboard and, and they become a floor plan. So it's, uh, we never storyboard as such. We, we did storyboard the, the visual effects scenes in the film, but otherwise it was uh, not storyboarded, but extremely precisely documented. Um so that's a very good starting point. Um, but and then of course um, on set things do happen. And um, myself I'm from a documentary background. I even started doing live television when I was 20, and, um, and I guess that is still in your blood that you're always um, you know, you always look around you, you always look behind you if the light is better somewhere else or as I operate myself, you always you might have set up a shot, but you always try to pan to the right, see if maybe the light is better over there. And it's it's quite um it's very alive on set and, and uh, Joachim loves to improvise. At the same time he loves to be in control, but he also finds it very exciting to find new ways of of telling a scene. And um and himself he's a he's a teenage skateboard champion. Uh, many years ago, he was doing that a lot, and I guess you can notice that on set sometimes that he really knows how to rehearse and how to keep on practicing and to perfect a shot or to perfect a trick, and uh, and that's beautiful when you have that support from a director when he knows that okay keep on practicing let's do it twenty times and then we'll hit it then we we'll do the then we we'll, we will get it right. But at the same time, he if he sees something it doesn't work, he's he can take a new course and he can jump to the side or, or he can flip around to uh, to find a new solution of the scene. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a strange combination of the two, actually.
0: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Ordinary People and Breakfast Club earlier, because I think something this movie has in common with both of those films is that it feels very much like a film where the filmmakers are in control and have a point of view, and yet also the performances are really allowed to, to breathe and they, f- they feel very natural. And, you know, performance is so crucial in this film. It's basically two hours of one emotionally naked moment after another. And I'm curious, what's your role as a cinematographer in helping to facilitate the best work from the actor?
1: Yeah, it's too, um, well, to start with, it's, it's important to, uh, to uh, you don't have to spend time with the actors beforehand, but I, I, Joachim always invite me for the, uh, for the, for the casting sessions. When we are even looking for actors, to and when he feels maybe this is the right person for the film, then he invites me, and uh, we sh- I shoot uh, kind of the casting tapes sometimes, and and uh, and then that's not just the actor standing in front of the wall doing his lines, but we always even play out the scene, and and uh, it's quite intricate in the little casting room how we have the camera moves around the actors, and we really f- feel it. And, uh, and of course, in that process, you, you get to know the actors if you hadn't worked with them before. Um, so that's how it all starts. And then, uh, of course, I operate myself. I, I always done that. And so I'm always there with the actors. And it's often on location, is is often cramped. And, and you're close to the actors uh, for many hours. And uh, and they sense it, I hope. They sense that you are... Um, also the way maybe Joachim and I work, that we work very close and we are all you know, we, we we are all filmmakers. We all we, all, we have enormous responsibility to to uh, to tell this story, as it's often often very personal to, to to us. But it's always very personal to us, and it means a lot. And uh, I think they they sense that the actors. The other part is that they also understand that it's it's all about the characters, and and I'm lighting the characters. I want to make the characters beautiful, but uh, but it's also very important that the actors. They should see me as a as a co filmmaker, just like them. We are we are storytellers, and it's not about making the actor or actress beautiful, or it's all about you know making the the characters beautiful. But at the same time, you really have to f- make them feel at ease, yeah, actors. You, you make them, and uh, if that means you have to make them. Uh, you know, feel more beautiful or feel more pampered. I mean, it's a, such a fine balance. It's, it's very tricky. Mm-hmm. But the key is really to to be able to operate yourself and, and that you are very engaged. Uh,
0: well, this was the first time you and Joachim collaborated on a film that was set and shot in the U.S., I think. And you mentioned the big crew. And, you know, I'm wondering, does it alter the way the two of you work at all when you have um, a bigger... Production, you know, was this different from your earlier films, or you know, how is, how's it really, how's your how's the way you the two of you worked evolved over these films?
1: I've done American films prior to this, and uh, they've been all American, so to speak. They have all been you know American financed. This film was partly financed by the Norwegian government, and and uh, and there were European soft money, so to speak, where where we really had, uh, we really had control. Uh, The director, Joachim had directors uh, cut and he he had his vision and the producers, uh, they really, they really respected it and they were extremely supportive and were beautiful collaborators and uh, so that part went really well even though the financial structure of this film was really tricky, there were so many different funds from different parts of Europe and but especially from Norway and I think that feeling they saw I guess the crew saw this on Joachim. they saw first of all that they they knew he had worked on this film for a very long while and uh, and he knew how the new understood very quickly how much this meant to him this film and uh, and they were also as filmmakers they were also being very moved by by the story I mean it's a lot about um, in about professionals being away from the families and and following following their their dreams and and many of us uh, are like that. We are are away a lot and we are following some kind of uh, a quest in life or we we want to uh, have this burden to tell these stories. So for many of us uh, in the crew it became very personal and it was a beautiful young New York crew that we found and uh, they were all extremely dedicated and uh, and uh, yeah it was an amazing experience it um, i mean it was a union film and it might have been uh, you know more trucks than than uh, then you uh, can have seen before but it often well, you forget that and you you enter this little small little living room where you shoot a scene and it, suddenly it feels like a little norwegian film again so uh, i don't think uh, it was a shock in, in that sense it didn't it just gave us a boost and and back to um, the origin of, of the project, of, um, of we talked about Breakfast Club and, and, and Ordinary People. It was so much joy to be walking on this, in this uh, film land. I mean, we, we did a reprise, we did a scene, some scenes in Paris and we got so excited about shooting our, you know, in the European film city. Where they shot on this holy ground where the Godard and Truffaut have been walking. And the same thing we felt when we were in, the, in suburbia. In America, and where you know, where you have seen films like ET and and uh, and other kind of teenage films uh, being set, so we got really excited and 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 um, inspired by the fact that we were actually walking on on American soil, uh, where so many great films have been shot, and and sometimes that even that even um, triggered the the look of the film. I mean, there's one scene in the film where. Conrad, the, the young, uh, the younger brother, is walking back home from a party at night and um, they're walking uh, in the neighborhood and I think we, the, there's some moonlight there which we normally don't create but the moonlight even had some blue tint to it and, and uh, I don't think we would never have done that if we had done the scene in Norway but as we felt that we were in you know we have seen this somewhere similar scene maybe in, in, a, in I think in E.T. or where, where they're using maybe a very strong blue light. We didn't go that far, but that was kind of a little homage to, to, uh, to American cinema of, of that time.
0: Uh, you know, you and Joachim obviously have a very successful partnership, having done a lot of movies together. And, and, you know, what do you feel it is about him that brings out the best in you? And, and in general, what are the characteristics you look for in a director that allow you to do your best work? Well, it all—it
1: really all depends. I thought for a while that a director has to be the one who's got an amazing vision and, and knows exactly how he how he wants to achieve things and and he, who is very impressive on set and can talk to actors, can can direct everyone in the crew and and and, and Joachim is someone like that. Actually, he uh, he um, he's very much in command and knows what he wants but at the same time he's a beautiful uh, collaborator and he uh, you can work so close with him and in the end it feels like you are making you don't know who makes the decisions in the end because he's so um, he's you're so much in tune with him and you're so much well in tune with each other and you almost have the same eye but all that doesn't matter in the end if it's not a good film in the end it doesn't matter how how um, impressive you are or have um, how good you are on set. In the end, all that matters is if if the film is great or not. And I hope, uh, and I and I'm so proud of the films we made together. But of course, then there are other directors who's on who are not as uh, much in control or seemingly not much as much in control. But in the end, they make beautiful beautiful films as well. So there's no. And so today, I'm not looking for a certain type of director. It all you can have all kinds of way of working. In the end, all that matters is if it's a good film and, and how to make a good film, you don't, like I said, you don't have to be the most uh, seemingly talented or skilled director uh, as long as you are a skilled, um, uh, you know, uh, ma- maker of films. You know, you, you don't, the process, it, the process can all be, can all differ.
0: Did you uh, shoot louder than bombs on film?
1: Love Than Bombs was shot on film. It was uh, shot on 35mm. Uh, all our films together since our first film we did in 2001, a short film, has been shot on on film.
0: What are the factors that that lead to that decision to shoot, uh, I guess in general, to shoot all the, all the movies on film and movies specifically to Louder Than Bombs? Why shoot on film as opposed to digital?
1: Well, we, we shot on film because we still believe it, it, uh, it looks like cinema. It still looks... Uh, it looks right for the project. It's, it's got a soul, and and that's what you want to obtain in a film. You want to capture the soul. There's a there's a long close-up. Well, there's a, there's a close-up in the film that goes on for 30 seconds. I think It's a still shot of of Isabelle staring at the camera. And. Um, what the intention exactly of that shot is is all up to the viewer, but it's you know it's, but it's about also finding her, capturing her soul, or to understand her, what's, uh, what's in her mind or what she's going through, and to shoot it on film made more sense. It's 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 alive. The it's alive and is responding to uh, the the texture of of the emulsion of film. It kind of is responding to her her thoughts in some way it's it's alive that she's alive and and the the medium that we are capturing on on, is also alive so uh, but at the same time it's it's, it's so versatile we can we can create uh, moody uh, visual poetic uh, shots with with film at the same time you can make something very artificial with it and you can it's it's got so many layers and there's so much uh, mystery and and possibilities with the format.
0: Uh, Do you remember what stocks you used?
1: We shot the entire film on on 500T, on Vision 3 500T. It's also to... um, I mean, we did interiors and and sunny exteriors on 500T. It's also to give the film, or at least the scenes in the present uh, and the past, uh, to to give them uh, the same texture and, and the same feeling to give it consistency.
0: Uh, And, you know, in terms of shooting on film, I want to extend that into talking a little bit about post. Was the entire process photochemical or did you do a digital intermediate? No, we
1: we did a DI, Uh, we did a DI in Norway with a colorist called uh, Jules Allery. And uh, there was a two week raid that we did. And um, it's when you look at it afterwards, it I guess it is not meant to look like it's been it's been graded. It should almost look that it's straight from the rushes that we have created this print. Uh, we were very pleased with the rushes, uh, but at the same time, when you start in the DI, when you start to to make it as uh, as uh, as little manipulated as possible to make it look as true as possible, it, it it's really hard work. When you try to make the white as white as you can and try to uh, to make it um, very clean and um, and,
0: uh, and subtle so basically a lot of manipulation goes into making it look not manipulated
1: yeah that's true i mean it's nothing um, but we're still using the that's true but we are still using the uh, the, the simple techniques to do that we're not going in and, and digitally um, changing things or or um, doing something um, out of the ordinary, but it just takes time, absolutely.
0: Well, you know, there's some extraordinary special effects in the movie, in the car crash scene and elsewhere. Uh, how closely are you able to work with the visual effects people to control the image in those effects shots? Well, they did an
1: amazing job. Um, they're, they're based in Denmark, the visual effects company. And uh, when almost on a film like this, you have, uh, it's not that many visual effects, but when you do them you need much more time than you really that you think you need. And uh, you really need a visual effects supervisor who is on set, who is almost like someone, just like your gaffer, who is there in pre-production and in production and is not seen as a person who is just doing post. And, but that's difficult to obtain that on a on a film like this where we are in America and the visual effects house is in, in Denmark and the schedules are not always um, in sync with each other. But still they did an amazing job, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's hard work, especially when you're communicating through Skype and you're showing storyboards to each other through, through Skype and, uh, and um, so it's a hard process. It's a really hard process, but in the end, I think it, it came out really well.
0: Thanks for joining me today, Jakob. This has been Jakob Ira and Jim Hemphill talking about Louder Than Bombs for the American Cinematographer podcast. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.